Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We're going to jump into things tonight. Uh, great to be with all of you. Uh, we're con- continuing our series uh, on spiritual warfare. That also was not very exciting. Okay. If you missed last week, go back. We have a podcast. You can listen to it. Uh, We spent a good deal of time, all, you know, 45 minutes last week, working through a supernatural worldview. Um, If you were to peel back the, the corners of our material universe, what does the Bible say is behind it? What is the spiritual reality of our world? And, and really, the message that I gave last week laid the groundwork for this series. So if you haven't heard it, what are you going to do? You're going to go download the podcast. You're going to listen to it. Okay. To recap just a little bit, just a little bit so we're all caught up, uh, the Bible tells a story about Yahweh and his crew of Elohim, or um, in our, I guess, vernacular, we'd say lowercase g gods. Not on the same level as, as Yahweh, don't freak out, we're not polytheists, but there are these Elohim, is the Hebrew word throughout the Old Testament, uh, who are present with God, who actually participate in the decision-making of how the universe Works Now, in the heavenly place, uh, what we learn is that there's an overflow of love and goodness, so God decides to make humans to live alongside them. His whole goal is to live alongside humans. This is the trajectory of the entire Bible. Uh, If you just kind of were to open up the Bible at one place, you may get little hints and notions here, but you go to the very end of the Bible in, in Revelation chapters 20 through 22, and what you see is that Where all of this earth project is headed is to a garden-like city where God dwells with humans. So so what God does in Genesis chapter 1, what we see is that he builds earth and he puts Eden on earth as a place where he and other spiritual beings, these cherubim, can live alongside humans. What ends up happening, you guys, most of you know the story, is that one of those spiritual beings thwarts God's ordered world and he leads humans to reject God and the project is off the rails. There's this haunting line from Genesis 3, verse 15, and this is where I wanna start this evening. Here's the line, we talked about it last week. God prophesies this over this serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, what is this enmity, and and is it just kind of the fact that, like, most ladies tend to not prefer snakes? Like, is that what's going on here? It's like, I don't think so, because I don't like snakes either, and most guys I know don't like snakes, so it's probably not that. I think this is far more cosmic in its reach. I think that what is being said here is that there is a very real battle in all of life, And the battle is between those who are truly human through their dependence on Yahweh and those who are like the snake, whether they're human or Elohim, who act as voices of chaos into our world today. That's the battle. 
It's between serpent offspring and Eve offspring, true human offspring, and those who through listening to the snake, allowing the snake to influence them, become like beasts in their life. So the scriptures say this, stay sober, stay alert. Here's what Peter says. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around, notice that language, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, why does this language matter, this animal, beast-like language? Well, remember what God said to Cain about his sin? Sin is at your door, it's crouching. What is it? What is crouching? That's kind of like an animal. And so there's this whole trajectory in the literature of the scriptures where, where uh, sin is personified as this animal that wants to turn you into an animal. And Peter picks up on this and he says, so be alert, <laughs> pay attention, have your eyes open. And, and so this is what we're gonna do tonight. Tonight we're gonna look at the three enemies of the Christian. If you're taking notes, write that down. The three enemies of the Christian. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, it's really broken up for uh, for Christians uh, into two different sections. There's the Hebrew Bible, which is uh, what we call the Old Testament. That's the story of God and humanity pre-Jesus. And then we have a transition where Jesus, this offspring that we've been waiting for, who will do the crushing of the serpent, shows up and we get four different documentaries about his life in the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. And the rest of the New Testament, aside from those documentaries, is full of these letters. Uh, there are these stories about um, or sorry, not stories, there are these, these letters written uh, to various churches throughout the Mediterranean, um, and they're written by the apostles, people who knew and walked with Jesus. And so that's what we have here in, in Ephesians, is we have a letter written to the church in Ephesus, and Paul is giving them guidance and advice, particularly in the area of spiritual warfare. So Ephesians chapter two is where we're gonna start, and we're gonna read uh, verses one through three. It says this, speaking to Christians, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Spiritual warfare is often painted, um, I think, in the church and, and probably for the last hundred years or so as this incredibly spooky thing. Uh, it, it's like heads spinning, uh, vomit, self-destructive behaviors, screaming voices. That's what we tend to think of when we think of spiritual warfare. And it's like, we need to call in the big guns to deal with this person's demon. And, and we're gonna talk about some of those things more later on in, in the series, but I would like to put forth to you this evening that most spiritual warfare is incredibly normal. It's often what we would just call mundane living. It's what we would identify as, that's just life, isn't it? Decisions, opinions, shortcuts, thoughts, all are the battleground of spiritual warfare in our day today. And I think we miss it and we're unknowingly deceived because we don't understand the tactics of our enemy. 
So this is what I wanna put a focus on tonight. Now you're like, wait, we don't look at the enemy, we look at Jesus. Okay, well yeah, I know, but I gotta get us there. Hang on, okay? We're gonna get there, I promise you. You're like, if you're new to Saints Hill, you're like, this is how normal messages go. Not at Saints Hill, we don't look at the enemy. But tonight, we're gonna just do a little bit of it because Paul does it. Okay, so now, within this passage that we have before us are what I would call the three enemies of the believer today. And they are the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or the devil, and our flesh, or simply put, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to fully understand spiritual warfare, we need to look at all three. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at all three. So first, the world. Paul says this speaking to Christians. He warns them about the ways of the world. Look down at your Bibles, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The ways of this world. Now, what does that mean? Why is he so down on the world that that God's created? What Paul is saying here is that the world, the way he connects our transgressions and sins, why did you have those? You followed the ways of the world. He's saying this, the world cultivates sin in you. It's a sin-cultivating machine. That's what the world is. Or like in just common vernacular, the world is a great place to sin. There's all kinds of places to sin in the world. And this is what Paul is essentially saying, but maybe you have a question, you're like, what is sin? Such a churchy word. What is sin? How does this work? I think, and here's my definition of sin. Sin is love that has been directed by the serpent. What is sin? It's love. It's your love, but it's been directed by the serpent. It's a good thing. Love's a good thing, but the serpent got control of it, and he's directed it in a direction it shouldn't be directed. And because of that, it will always miss God's intention and design. That's actually the word for sin in the Hebrew. It, it has this connotation of uh, 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 somebody who's an, an archer, and they pull the bow back, and they fire their arrow, and they miss the mark. That's sin. You miss the design. You miss the design. Why? Your love was directed by the serpent, just like the first sin, right? Just like Eve. Uh, Do this instead of what God says. So often, sin is the placing of one desire above another desire that shouldn't be above that desire. Um, Or in a phrase, it's disordered love. That was Augustine's idea. It was this, it was your loves are disordered. They're not in the correct order and it's bringing about crazy chaos in your life. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way in his story. He essentially said, in mere Christianity, he says, imagine... Uh, that, that your friend tells you something very important to them, something that they don't want you to tell other people, but something that's very interesting about themselves, something that maybe other people might even find interesting about them. And you tell them, oh, don't worry about it, I'm a steel trap. You're not, nobody's gonna hear about this. But later on that week, you find yourself at a party. And at that party, you feel a little insecure. Everybody else has jobs that maybe pay more than yours, or they have interesting vacations that they're going on, and, 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 or they've read a book that you've never even heard of before, and somehow everybody's like, oh, yes, I've read that too. And you're like, really? Um, and, and, and it finally gets to you, and it's your turn to talk at the dinner table. And what do you tell everybody? You tell them what your friend told you in confidence. Oh, it was interesting. It had people in rapt attention. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. You have placed the love of attention over the love of your friend, or you have placed the love of attention over your love of being faithful to a friend. That's chaotic love. (laughs) That's disordered desire. So what is Paul saying? He's saying spiritual warfare is happening when the culture of your world encourages you to sacrifice virtue for vice. 
the ways of this world. And notice what he says. The the, the world, it's not just like it happens in the world. It has ways of producing this in you. And so I thought about this. I thought, well, what does he mean by ways? Like, what are the world's ways? And and, and I I instantly thought of this encounter that I had this last week. My wife and I went to this brewery, and we're sitting outside, and we're talking to this, uh, this person. And they were telling us all about their life and what they do and where they're from and all this stuff. And before they got to where they're from, in my mind I go, they're from L.A. There's no question, they're from L.A. The way they dressed, the way they talked, their values, what they thought was cool, what, like all of it. I was like, oh, they're from L.A. And then sure enough, she's like, I'm from L.A. I'm like, oh, I knew you were from L.A. What is that? It's the ways of this world. There are places where the value system of that place will change your value system. I'm not even saying like anything negative about that. We have ways of Newburgh, you know, or ways of the Willamette Valley or Portland or whatever, um, where, where you just know, oh, they're from there. I, I can just tell that they've been formed and shaped by a place. So, so like, what are the ways of our world? I think one of the main ways of our world in our culture is this general emphasis to gain significance in life at all costs. You, your life, what is it about? It's about you building your project, and it's a project of self-importance. Build yourself. How many people are okay with their shame if it means their fame? (laughs) It's like everywhere. It's like so, it's like, do you have no shame? It's like, oh, but you got famous. Was it worth it? Or, Or how many of us were okay with small injuries to others if it means personal wealth? It's like it didn't really do anything wrong, and it really did benefit me. I mean, that's a way of this, of this world. Or how about this one? This one's a total way, one of the ways of our world today is taking on an identity that you weren't familiar with before, but which has incredible cultural value to have. It's like, <laughs> I won't, I'm not gonna go, I won't go, you'll see through the lines. You see what the culture values and you go, hmm, if I promote that part of me in my life, even if it isn't a you know, kingdom value, I'll be loved by the people around me. I may even have a cultural leg up financially. I may have a, culturally, a cultural leg up even uh, you know, in, my, in my job or in my career just by emphasizing this part of me and this piece of my identity. I think the main way of our world, though, is the way of control through desire. This is particularly Western. Uh, You know, in George Orwell's 1984, the warning was essentially this. Beware of governments that want to control you from the outside. Beware of Big Brother. (laughs) He's always watching, you know. And I think, you know, there's, there, we've had iterations of that culturally, but I think the warning of a brave new world is far more real for us in our culture today, which is be, be, be careful of control that comes from your desires. You don't even know you're being controlled because they're just giving you what you want, numbing you to, to the reality of your imprisonment. We are living in a world where we are controlled by what we want, and we're about to wake up to it, particularly this year with the, the shipping shortages and with this, this economic squeeze that's gonna happen because people are gonna say, where's my stuff? And we're gonna go, oh, I was being controlled by my desires. In our world, it seems there is no principle, there's no honor, there's no truth, it's just what do you want? What do you want? And while there isn't always a conscious mind or a personal mind behind this, 
uh, this, this culture of desire that we have leads to a culture of the seven deadly sins. Like, think about the seven deadly sins. Lust, pride, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. All of those seven deadly sins become our general cultural milieu uh, because we're just motivated by what we desire. I want it. I just want it. I, I was listening to this podcast the other day with these, uh, these investors, and one of the investors said, here's my principle. Here's how I've, he was a, he's a billionaire. He's like, here's what I have done to make all my money. I do not invest in anything that doesn't promote the seven deadly sins. If it, if it doesn't promote the seven deadly sins, I don't invest in it. Why? Ways of this world. Ways of this world. And that develops a serpent-influenced world. You're like, what is happening to my children? Why are they drifting so far? What's happening to my family members? Why have they gone off the rails? Oh, it's a serpent-influenced world. Be careful. Secondly, the, the, the devil. This is what he says. You followed the ways of this world and the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Scholars believe that Paul here is referring to the devil. Now, what's the devil? It sounds a little kooky. Maybe you're like, this guy's gonna talk about the devil, really? This personalized evil being behind the world? Uh, what is the devil? Well, John, the apostle, in his uh, first letter, 1 John, exposes the devil as the same creature who through pride fell from heaven and initiated the collapse of Eden. Here's what he says in, uh, in 1 John. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The way that that worked out in English was quite nice. It's not the same in Greek. Uh, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. I love that. Why did Jesus come? He's like, I need to destroy some works of the devil. That's why I came. All of it was for that. So, so look, while we may sense a generalized evil in our world, a culture of the seven deadly sins, a generalized force of chaos, I think for many, we personally sense a devil in our life, a personalized force of evil in our life, or a personalized force of chaos that's trying to get us off the rails in our lives. It's that cliche of a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, and it's like, I'm torn between the two, these warring factions within me. And notice what it says here. It says that the devil is described as a work, as a spirit who is at work in the disobedient. Isn't that interesting? In the disobedient. There, there's debate, and we're gonna actually get a little bit into the debate, uh, I think, in two weeks. There's a debate of whether Satan or a demon can be inside a Christian or not. It's like, can a, can, a, can a demon be inside a Christian? And we're gonna talk about it in a couple weeks. But for now, it doesn't really matter. What I want you to see is that the spirit of the air, the devil, has specific ways that he wants you to follow and he will use our disobedience to God in order to gain traction. He's at work in the disobedient. Here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says this, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. What's that? What's a foothold? It's churchy sounding. He's like, oh, that guy? Yeah, the devil really got a foothold in his life, man. You know, it's like, okay, a uh, foothold. What, what, what does that mean? Well, the word for foothold here in Greek is topos. Topos. Think of the word like topographical. What, what is it? It's topos. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a place. It's a seat or an opportunity. Some of your Bibles will translate, do not give the devil an opportunity. And as I was thinking about this, I was like, what metaphor can I use to, to describe what this is like? And, and Chris Sharp, where are you? Chris, you're gonna like this. 
uh, Chris and Laura both, I went rock climbing with them uh, a month ago or so. Um, a foothold, it's like a rock climber. Rock climbers, all rock climbers know that you really don't want to use your arms too much. You primarily want to use your legs. And so where you put your feet really, really matters. Because your arms are smaller muscles than your legs are. And so the more you can put on your legs, the longer you can climb. And so what, what climbers are constantly looking for, they, they'll actually like hang like this, looking for a foothold, putting all of their strain on their bone structure rather than their muscles, rather than their arms. And they're looking for where can I put my foot to get a good uh, position so that I can get to the next uh, spot or get to the next thing. And so like, think about this. The devil is rock climbing you and he's looking around for where are they gonna give me a place to put my foot, a secure location so that I can have my way with them. That's what he's looking for. Hopefully you remember that. And when he has that ground, when he has that foothold, he can then whisper more and more into your identity. He gets more and more ability to speak to you, to get your attention. And the three things here, I really want you to see this. We're gonna just like totally expose this guy for what he is saying. The three things that the devil speaks are deception, accusation, and temptation. Write that down. Deception, accusation, and temptation. He speaks deception. It's from the very beginning. Did God really say you can't eat in this garden? That's what he says. He says, you can't eat from any tree in this garden. What is that? He didn't actually say that. That's deception. That's a half truth. <laughs> that's like a, that's a 10% truth. Uh, God doesn't care about you at all. You ever heard that one? God won't do anything. He's uninterested. He's too busy. He's running a universe. Who are you to bother him? It's deception. Uh, accusation. Uh, in Job, we see this. Uh, Satan accuses believers. He comes before God and he, and he accuses uh, Job, he accuses him. He's like, he, he's, Job's more like me than he is like you. Job's like me because I only love you and serve you for what you give to me. I bet Job's the same way. You're a fraud. You'll never do anything with your life. You're a liar and you deserve the pain in your life. You'll be alone and it's all your fault. It's accusation. Temptation. Uh, the devil tempts us in sexual ways. First Corinthians chapter five talks particularly about that in verse seven, if you wanted to look that up. Uh, he tempts us to put ourselves first in everything. Uh, I think of Jesus uh, tempted by the Satan. Just let me control you and look what I will give you. It's temptation. Just take a hit. Everything will be good. Let me control you and watch what I can provide for you. Here's the point. When you see deception, accusation, or temptation, you know that it's the devil. That's not how God speaks. That's not what he says. And I think it's, it's important to recognize in moments, I'll just catch myself, <clears throat> excuse me, and I'll go, oh, I'm not thinking God thoughts. I'm thinking serpent thoughts. And I've actually agreed with some of those temptations. I've agreed with some of those accusations. I've agreed with, with, with some of that deception. I need to pause. I need to pause. That's what the devil does. Lastly, the flesh. Uh, look down at your Bibles. Verse three says this. All of us, also lived among them at one time, speaking of the uh, unbelievers, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What is the flesh? I think in, in some fundamental, uh, fundamentalist circles, 
the flesh has just uh, come to mean anything in the physical world, essentially, or, or just all of human uh, existence and life and experience and kind of this condemnation of uh, just, just basic living. And, and I don't think that's what this is talking about. Uh, the flesh for Paul represents the way of life before coming into Christ. That's what the flesh represents. And it is a life, what is the flesh? It's a life dominated by trying to get significance outside of dependence on God. You're like, what is the flesh? It's, it's when you try to get significance outside of dependence on God. The first example, in my opinion, of the flesh that we see in the scriptures is uh, Eve. Eve, what did she do? She saw that the fruit had something to offer her outside of God. It was pleasing to her eye. Isn't that interesting? What is it? I will use my own physical faculties to determine what's best for me. That's the flesh. I have a craving for this thing outside of dependence on you. You might be able to bring it into my life, but I'm gonna go get it for myself. That's the flesh. And remember, this is the temptation of all humans, all humans. Will you try to get the life that God offers you apart from knowing him? Will you try to get the life that God has on offer apart from actually knowing him? This is the life struggle of all people outside of Christ. The word for flesh here in Greek is sarx, and it's a technical term. Paul describes uh, what this life is like, what this sarks life is like in Galatians chapter five. Here's what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. <laughs> it's like, oh, uh, here we go. Sexual immorality, any sexual activity outside of a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. Impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. All of those things that we just listed are attempts to have a full life outside of submission to God. All of them. What is sexual immorality? It's, I don't want to pay the price of faithfulness in a marriage to you, so I'm going to get what I can in this moment regardless of my commitments. It's, I'm God. There's no virtue above my own uh, lust in this moment. I can make my own choices. What is jealousy? It's, I deserve what you have. I don't know how you got it, but I want that. I love me more than I value you. I'm God, and so I should have that. So here's the point tonight. All three of these enemies conspire. The world, the flesh, and the devil. How, how do these, they all conspire together. It's not like so you only have the flesh or you only have the devil or you only have the word, world. Here's how they conspire. The ways of the world lull me into thinking sin is normal. The sin in my life gives over topos to hear the deception, accusation, and temptation of the devil. And the way I used to live reminds me of my old ways of getting the significance, getting significance apart from God. They conspire, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspires to bump us off course from the heaven on earth project that God has for us. So do you see our emerging image of spiritual warfare? <laughs> like, you're like, what about deliverance ministry? Okay, we're gonna get there, I promise. But, but here's the image that we're getting so far. Spiritual warfare is a moment-by-moment -moment struggle to get humans to think incorrectly about God and about his world. That's what it is. It's the daily, it's the battle for the mind. 
Why does Paul talk so much about the mind, bringing our minds as, uh, to God to be renewed? What, what, why is it so much about what we believe? Jesus is constantly talking about what do you actually believe? Because what happens in here happens outside of our lives as well. It's, it's, it, it, it's as a person thinks, so they become. Since we are modern and scientific, we just don't perceive it. We don't perceive it. We're like, that's just living. I don't know that there's anything demonic behind that. I heard a scholar recently say this, uh, Michael Heiser. Here's what he had to say. He said, stop presuming there is a spiritual battle only when there is something bizarre. You are being duped and trained to only notice the odd. That is a distraction. Spirit beings are intelligent beings. It's obvious when they manifest, but don't be misled into thinking that is the only activity they engage in. The spirit being's goal from the very beginning, Genesis chapter three, is all about how we think. How do you think? And they know that certain thoughts will lead to certain behaviors. Their aim is Genesis three all over and over and over again in your life. So here's how I want to end. I want us to end by thinking correctly about our enemies. <laughs> okay, here's the good part. I'm like, wow, that was a lot of rising tension. Okay, here's the good part. Here's the conclusion. I want us to think correctly. There is a second part to our Ephesians uh, chapter, our, our Ephesians verse that I purposely le left out. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. I'm gonna read the whole thing. So Ephesians 2, verse one. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and, the, and the, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath, but God, yeah, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. All three, the devil, the world, our flesh, they had power but God, but God. And that's our faith. See, where does it say that we're seated in that passage? Where does it say that we're seated? With, with Christ in the heavenly places. Where is Christ seated? I want you to know something about where he is seated in Ephesians uh, chapter one. And he seated, the father, seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the, in the one to come and God placed all things under his feet. You think about what we talked about last week, the Elohim, the rulers, the authorities, the, the, the principalities, the powers, where are they now? Where are they now? They're under his feet. Where are you seated? Next to him. Where are they? They're under your feet. See, the truth is our weapon. The truth is our weapon. And I wanna show you what God has done to each of these enemies. 
I want to show you what he's done to the world. Here's what he says about the world. Actually, Andoni, without even knowing, this is what you started our gathering with. John 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What does that even mean? It means that the motivations and ways of this world can be surrendered so that you have no other projects than the kingdom project that God has for you. It's possible. It's possible. You don't have to be formed into the ways of this world. Culture is a river, and you can choose to get in it and just let it take you where you want to go, or you can make your own way. What will you do? What about the flesh? What do you do with the flesh? Oh, we're going to go hard on this next week. This is going to be good. Uh, what about the flesh? Because there's so much misconception. This is the best news ever. Romans 8, this is in the Bible, guys. This is insane. Romans 8, verse 7 through 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. So you're like, that flesh sounds pretty bad. Is there a tug of war in my heart? Uh, no. You are not in the realm of the flesh. Some of you don't believe it yet, and that's just part of the renewing of your mind. And next week, we're going to talk a lot, of, lot more about that. Uh, what about the devil? What about the devil? Uh, here, here's what it says in, in Colossians chapter 2. It says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, Old Testament reference, I know it's kind of weird, but it's there, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having, this is so good, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. That's good news. Sin doesn't have the same power and neither do the authorities and the powers that once existed. They are disarmed, defeated. They are beneath the feet of Jesus and his cosmic bride, us. Do you feel it? Do you live like it's true? Our lives likely are these battles that we've been oblivious to. There are things that we have called normal that are in fact serpent stuff and it's time to shine a light on those things and say, I don't, no more serpents. I don't want any of the serpent in my life. None of it in my life. I just want you, God. I just want you. The good news tonight is that by the truth, we can be free. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Are you free? Yes, you're free. What if God could change your desires to want what is correct? If he was able to create you to do the impossible, to create you out of nothing, could he not bring your desires into line with his intentions and purpose? What if God had defeated the devil? And all of, the, all of this was just smoke. What if your flesh wasn't as much of a factor as you thought? The Christian life is learning how to walk in the authority and the power of these truths, even when the serpent is whispering in your ears lies, doubt, and partial truths, coming back to strengthen yourself on the truth. And that's what we're gonna talk about the next two weeks. Okay, let's all stand together. I wanna pray for you. Let's just go right into communion. What, a, what an incredible sign of our victory and, and what a reminder uh, of the triumph over the powers, the authorities, over the serpent, on the cross. So if you don't have uh, communion, I think uh, Connor's gonna be down here with uh, some communion options uh, for you. So go ahead and, 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 and if you have your communion, just hold it before you. And uh, let's start with the, with the bread.
One of the common refrains throughout the entire uh, scripture is this idea of the upside down kingdom. That what, you know, the hierarchy and what made sense in this life was entirely flipped on its head in the next life. And that what God, you know, he, he talks about the first uh, will be last and the last will be first. And the, the cross is, is exactly that. It's that the enemy thought, oh, we've got him. We've got him, kill him. There's no resurrection, kill him. And what looked like a defeat became actually the enthroning of the king of the world. What Isaiah 53 talks about when it talks about his body is it, it says that it's by the brokenness of his body, by the wounds that he has in his body that were healed. The very things that could have been his shame, the very things that could have been his downfall are the things of power that now have, have the, they're the purchasing rights of healing in this life and salvation in the next. So hold the body before you, say this with me. Thank you, Jesus, for your body, broken for me to make me whole. Go ahead and receive. Go ahead and open up the juice. You know, we sing a song about the blood of Christ and what the blood uh, does. What we have to see is that Jesus was not uh, just, he didn't just make a random sacrifice. He made a sacrifice that was in the Levitical tradition of animals being sacrificed for sin. Uh, there, there would be different periods of time where, where uh, Jewish people would bring their animals, whether it be a goat or a dove, really whatever they could afford, bring it to the temple, and it would be sacrificed for them there, and they would see the, the life exit from this animal so that they could continue living. A visceral reminder of what sin deserves. Sin's a big deal. And so what Jesus has done with his blood is he has actually, he shed it so that we can live. It is now, with the blood of Christ on us, it is now illegal to see us as dying people. And we must now view ourselves in light through the filter of the blood and the filter of what he's done. There's no accusation. There's no condemnation. There's no deception that can get in the way of this blood. It says in Romans chapter eight, that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. His blood poured out. Let it be a sign of my love for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So say this as you hold it before you. Jesus, thank you for your blood. Thank you for making me righteous. I receive that gift. Take and drink. Let's continue to worship. We're just gonna have a, a time just for you to bring yourself before the Lord. And maybe there's things in your life where you're, you're recognizing, you're going, that was deception. That was accusation. That's been temptation. No more serpent stuff. If he's disarmed, if he's defeated, if he's beneath our feet, we now get the, we have the ability to tell him where to go. Get out. Get out right now. Out. And we get to say, Holy Spirit, come and would you fill me where there's been those empty places where I've tried to get significance without you. Where I've allowed, where I've, I've agreed with lies and it's just brought about total chaos in my life. No, I, I come in line with you. We do that through worship. Down through history, why do we sing? Down through history, for thousands of years, Christians have sung. Christians have, have written songs about God. There's something about singing where we just, it's like, <laughs> and singing songs that have been written for us. It's like all of the accusation, all the temptation, all the deception, I don't have time for it. 
I got my eyes fixed on you and I'm gonna give you what you're worth. Let's worship. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you or if you wanna stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store or visit our website.